the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. He struck me as harmless. If I were to see him on a dark street, I wouldn't have feared him. I'd have been like, oh, it's fucking Larry. He wouldn't have been the person I was afraid of. You never know who you're with or who you're around or what circumstances are gonna lead you to do something heinous. It just surprises me that it will always surprise me that he did it. Even if he didn't deal the final blow, he was in a large part a part of the assault, the cover-up, the cleanup, the moving across state lines. There was a lot of times he could have made a better choice. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Alexis Linkletter. You might notice that Jack Vanek, the sweet, soothing sounds of her voice, are suspiciously absent. Everybody I know is sick, including Jack Vanek. You gotta put your health first. She is recovering quickly so she can join us as soon as humanly possible. But it's just gonna be me today holding down the fort and taking you through another harrowing episode of The First Degree. So without further ado, we're gonna turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. When you think about it, we meet so many people. Each and every day, we cross paths with stranger after stranger. Some of these strangers aren't in our lives for very long, like the Uber driver you chatted with on the way to the airport, or the receptionist who checked you in your dental appointment. We meet these individuals for mere seconds, and like a blip on the radar, they're there and they're gone. We go from, I'm good, how are you? To, thank you, have a good one. And we move on with our lives. But once in a blue moon, a complete stranger can alter the course of our lives forever. Sometimes it's for the better. You happen to bump shoulders with a person at a concert. Three years later, they're your fiance. You spark up a riveting conversation with a stranger at a grocery store. Suddenly, you've nabbed an exciting new job across the country. The universe shuffled its deck and unexpectedly, you're better for it. But just as easily as the universe can deal you a good hand, it can deal you a bad one too. Because sometimes, strangers can make our lives worse, far worse. A person who we might never have crossed paths with on a different day or at a different time. Well, that person could make all the difference in a big, bad way. Because who's to say that the strange guy you met at a party is a good person? Who is to say that when you head back to their place, you're going to be safe, even with a group of friends, even if you're confident that you can handle your own safety? Who's to say that this stranger won't change your entire life? Who's to say that this stranger won't end your life? Today's case begins on Sunday, November 13th of 2016. In film, Marvel's hit movie Doctor Strange was released to great box office success. And in music, Closer by the Chainsmokers was number one on the billboards. And in the United States, November of 2016 was an incredibly politically charged month. The week before, Donald Trump won the presidential election against Hillary Clinton. And as many of our listeners know, everyone had and has strong feelings about that. 
Within days of the election, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets, including many in New York City, where demonstrators chanted outside of Trump Tower. And this is relevant to today's case because our setting is New York City. More specifically, a luxury condo known as the Grand Sutton, which is on East 59th Street in Manhattan near the Queensboro Bridge. Usually we provide you with background information on the city where cases take place, but we're all pretty familiar with New York City. Population, 8.4 million, five boroughs, Times Square, subways, you get the gist. So let's talk about the Grand Sutton itself. Built in 1988, the building is 37 stories with two condos per floor. They offer a private garden, fitness center, and additional storage space for residents, plus parking, which is worth its weight in gold if you live in New York City. The Grand Sutton is located in one of the Big Apple's best areas, with the East River on one side and Central Park on the other. Currently, a three-bedroom, three-bathroom floor plan at the Grand Sutton is selling for two to three million, depending on the view. Clearly, this is an expensive place where only the very wealthy can live. And in the past, those wealthy residents have included famous architects like I.M. Pei, fashion designers like Kenneth Cole, and actresses like Marilyn Monroe. And the Grand Sutton was also once home to Jeffrey Rackover, who was a hotshot jewelry designer who famously helped his friend, Donald Trump, pick out his future wife Melania's 15-carat emerald-cut diamond engagement ring in 2004. Our first degree for today's case is named Adrian, but Adrian is actually from New Jersey, not New York City. In fact, she attended Red Bank Catholic High School in Red Bank, New Jersey. It's a smaller, private, four-year Catholic school with about 900 students. And as Adrian describes it, this high school is exactly what you picture when you think private Catholic high school. I guess a typical Catholic school, we all had to wear uniforms. I remember waking up and going to college and being like, oh my God, I have to dress myself today. I don't have a uniform that I wear the same thing every day and look like everybody else. Even though this area of New Jersey was highly populated, with over 645,000 people in the county, Adrian's school was more tight-knit than you'd expect. People knew where you lived. People knew what kind of car you drove, where you came from. I mean, it was a, very, it was a small school, so everybody pretty much knew everybody. I'm not sure how large our graduating class was, but it was less than 300. And just like all private schools, there was a yearly tuition. Adrian and her fellow classmates weren't necessarily mega rich, but their families were well off enough to afford this nice school. Today, the school's tuition is about $16,000 a year, which is only a little bit higher than the average private school tuition for New Jersey. Not everybody who attended our school was affluent, but the majority were. There was a tuition, so while I wouldn't say everybody was upper, like high upper class, you did need some money to attend the school. And it was at this high school that Adrian met a fellow classmate, and his name was Lawrence DeLeon, but everybody called him Larry. In that area, everybody that goes to that school is coming from different places. So Larry and I didn't live in the same town, but we lived near each other, like within about 20 minutes. Adrian sometimes refers to him as, quote, fucking Larry, end quote. Honestly, it was the only way I could process it because they would tell me something new and I'd be like, are you talking about fucking Larry? When Adrian knew Larry back in school, he seemed average, normal, just another teen boy who liked sports and messing around in class. He struck me as harmless. He was silly. We kind of made fun of each other a little bit. It was never anything particularly malicious. We just kind of joked with each other occasionally. 
And if I were to see him on a dark street, I wouldn't have feared him. I'd have been like, oh, it's fucking Larry. He wouldn't have been the person I was afraid of. Adrian engaged with Larry at school. For the most part, they stuck to their own friendship groups. But when they did interact, Adrian always thought Larry was fine. Every clique you could think of existed within the school. He was on the football team. I was a goth kid who didn't want anybody to talk to me. He was just kind of the goofy kid. He was a jock, but he was kind of goofy. Like, while we weren't friends, we kind of made fun of each other. He never did anything to me to make me hate him. It's just that we were not in the same group. We were in a lot of classes together. I specifically remember him being in an English class with me. And there was no animosity. He wasn't particularly mean or aggressive or any of those things. Actually, one of Adrian's most memorable moments with Larry happened in English class. We were in English class. He got up and he walked across the room and he shut the lights off. And the teacher was like, Larry, what are you doing? So Adrian doesn't like the light. But, you know, creepy goth girl doesn't like the light. Turns the light back on. All the lights turn on except for the one directly over me, which starts violently flashing. So while my friend in front of me is absolutely dying laughing, I hear all the tables screech away from me. <laughs> I too was laughing at this situation because I couldn't, I couldn't have planned it if I wanted to. So it wasn't malicious. He was just kind of, you know, joking around with me. I think that day I was wearing a bracelet with a spider on it because I thought it was funny. And so he asked me if I could control spiders. Like it was always silly. It was always benign. Larry probably sounds like a lot of boys you knew in high school. He's fun to be around, but you don't spend a lot of your day thinking about them. So Larry and Adrian both graduated from high school around 2006, and they both moved away to start their lives as adults. And in any other timeline of events, that would have been the end of that. Adrian would never have thought about Larry ever again. He was never really on my radar. We went different ways. I ended up moving to Pennsylvania. I assume he moved to New York. I'm not really sure where he ended up, but I didn't hear anything about him until 10 years later. Larry had fully vanished from Adrian's memories, until one day she caught wind of some shocking news. You see, Adrian's younger sister was now at Red Bank Catholic High School herself, and in Adrian's sister's classes, they were discussing some current events. And who had been in the news recently? You guessed it, fucking Larry. I'm not sure where I was, but my sister at the time, she's 10 years younger than me, was going to the same high school that we went to. And she texted me, and first she asked me what year I graduated. I said 2006. She goes, did you know Larry Dilly? And I was like, yeah, I, I knew Larry. He was in a bunch of my classes. And she's like, do you know that he murdered somebody? <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> How did that happen? And at that time, there was like a ton of misinformation going around. So the information she initially sent me was partially correct. But they had been learning about this situation before they realized that the person they're learning about was an RBC alum. The body of 26-year-old Joey Comunale had been found in New Jersey, and not just anywhere in New Jersey. His body was discovered behind Foggia's flower shop in Oceanport, New Jersey, a 10-minute drive from Red Bank Catholic High School and one of Larry's old stomping grounds. And wouldn't you know it, Larry himself had been arrested. He was clearly involved, but how? At first, there was speculation that Larry murdered Joey. That's what Adrian's sister was referring to. 
but it wasn't clear what had actually happened to Joey or why. All of the answers to the important stuff, like who, what, when, where, they were murky. Upon learning what had happened to Joey, Adrian could not believe that Larry would do this. And according to Larry, he didn't. Well, he didn't do some of it anyway. I was shocked. I would never think of that with him. It completely blew my mind. I mean, the crime was so violent, and I'd never seen him, I don't know, even like raise his voice or anything. So it, it just seemed so incongruent with the person that I remember from high school that like we would joke around with each other. What is going on? What happened to Joey Comunale? Why was Larry involved? How was Larry involved? And if the body was discovered in New Jersey, how does any of this lead back to New York City's luxury apartment complex, the Grand Sutton? To answer these questions, you all know the drill. We gotta go back. Lawrence DeLeon was born on July 27, 1988 in New Jersey. Throughout his life, he would go by Larry. And that might be because Larry was actually Lawrence R. DeLeon III. His grandfather and father also had the same name, which kind of tracks because Larry came from a wealthy family. And Lawrence R. DeLeon III just sounds like old money, come on. Larry's family owned a successful roofing company in Long Beach, New Jersey, which is a six-minute drive from Oceanport, New Jersey, where Larry grew up. According to Larry's old LinkedIn page, he owned a roofing company by 2007. Larry would have only been 19 at the time, so this was probably his family's business. And according to the Journal News, Larry graduated from Wagner College, which is on Staten Island, in 2011. And as an adult, Larry gained a reputation for his hot temper. He'd been in his fair share of bathroom brawls and had a criminal record to show for it. But that's not a version of Larry that our first-degree Adrian had ever seen before in high school. There wasn't a lot of violence in my school. I kind of remember there being like one fight per year, but it, there was no tolerance for it. So we just really didn't have any violence in the school. So I never saw him do anything like what I've read about. In March of 2016, 28-year-old Larry met 25-year-old Jimmy Rackover. Jimmy and Larry both loved sports. They loved spending money and they loved fitness. According to Larry, he and Jimmy would do steroids together. And within just a few short months, Jimmy and Larry became extremely close friends. So who exactly was Jimmy Rackover? James Arthur Baudois II was born on March 12th of 1991 to his mother, Erin Boyd, and his father, James Sr., in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. James, who went by Jimmy, was the eldest son. And according to Jimmy, his father was abusive. So he was primarily raised by his mother. From the ages of 16 to 20, Jimmy was in and out of Florida jails. He was picked up for trespassing, burglary, strong-armed robbery, drug possession, and cutting off his court-ordered ankle monitor. But all of that changed in 2012, when Jimmy moved from Florida to New York City. He was 21 years old and wanted a fresh start. But as a lot of people find out after moving to New York City, a fresh start doesn't always happen quite so easily. At first, Jimmy struggled to find his path. He worked as a DJ and a bartender, and he picked up the occasional modeling gig too. Once he worked as a Ralph Lauren shop clerk, but none of these jobs were taking off or providing him the lifestyle he aspired to have. Jimmy was this close to calling it quits and leaving New York City forever. That is, he was until Jimmy met 50-something-year-old Jeffrey Rackover in 2013. 
Jeffrey was that jewelry designer we mentioned at the top of the episode, the one who helped Donald Trump pick out a ring and lived in the Grand Sutton. Jeffrey was even famously called the jeweler to the stars. According to Jimmy, he and Jeffrey met over dinner, organized by a mutual friend. But according to Jeffrey's spokesperson, they first crossed paths at a health club. Regardless of how it happened, shortly after meeting, Jeffrey and Jimmy really hit it off. As a multimillionaire, Jeffrey provided financial support to Jimmy. According to Newsday, Jeffrey purchased Jimmy a condo at the Grand Sutton, and Jeffrey used his connections to get Jimmy enrolled at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Plus, Jeffrey also helped Jimmy get a job as an insurance broker for jewelry and fine art. It's not an exaggeration to say that Jeffrey changed Jimmy's entire life for the better. If you're wondering about the nature of their relationship, both men describe their companionship as a father son type relationship, not a romantic one. And honestly, speculating about someone's sexuality is unnecessary. So we're not going to entertain that here. But others did speculate and wonder about their relationship. And for a while, Jeffrey and Jimmy's relationship became a hot button topic. The speculation was so rampant that Jeffrey and Jimmy devised a plan to eradicate any rumors of homosexuality. They would tell people that Jimmy was Jeffrey's long-lost biological son. The story was that Jeffrey had an affair with Jimmy's mother 20 years ago, and they'd miraculously reconnected after all this time. To help with this ruse, and because Jeffrey truly cared for Jimmy like a son, Jimmy formally changed his surname from Baudois to Rackover in March of 2015. And while Jeffrey never legally adopted Jimmy, Jimmy's name change was legal. And at that time, Jeffrey supported it. In fact, as Jimmy tells it, the name change was Jeffrey's idea, and Jimmy felt honored. Jimmy had undergone a complete transformation. He went from new in town, Florida man, Jimmy Baudois, to New York City urbanite Jimmy Rackover. He had a thrilling career and a lavish lifestyle, which he enjoyed immensely. Jimmy liked showing off his tailored suits, Gucci belts, and high-end whiskey. Those who knew him said he was flashy about his nice things. Jimmy was proud that he'd become this shinier, more expensive version of himself. He was, quite literally, a new man. And that's the man Jimmy was when he met Larry DeLeon. On Saturday, November 13th of 2016, 28-year-old Larry was partying at a club known as the Gilded Lily. Larry lived in Jersey City, but he'd made the trek out to New York City that night, and he wasn't alone. He'd gone out with his close friend and roommate, a Max Gemma, and those two went way back. Max and Larry were childhood friends who met in elementary school. At the time, they both lived around Oceanport, New Jersey. For a while, Max's dad, Gordon Gemma, was even the mayor of Oceanport. But Max's dad returned to his real estate attorney roots when he became the director of property development for the Kushners. If you've heard of the Kushners before, well, that's probably because Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, is married to Jared Kushner. This connection becomes more important later, but the main message you should take right now is this. Max was from a very wealthy family with strong connections to Trump's in-laws. And in November of 2016, Trump was the president-elect. Within months, Trump would be the most powerful person in the United States. So you could assume that being in the good graces of his in-laws might be beneficial. By 2016, Larry and Max were roommates together in Jersey City, and here they were, on Sunday, November 13th at 3.30 a.m., leaving a club just as it was closing. 
As people exiting the club waited to be picked up on the sidewalk, Larry and Max began chatting up three women, standing with two men. According to Max's interviews with Vanity Fair, Larry was usually very shy, unless he'd had a drink or two. But that night, they'd been drinking, so maybe Larry was feeling a bit more gregarious, because Larry invited the group to an after-party at Jimmy Rackover's condo. One of the women later recalled Larry saying, his dad is like some famous jeweler in the city, and he's having a party. Except, Jeffrey Rackover wasn't throwing a party. Neither was Jimmy, for that matter. But that didn't seem to matter, as everyone stuffed themselves into cabs and rideshares and made their way to Grand Sutton. On the way to Jimmy's place, one of the women took a photo of Larry. She joked that it was a precautionary measure. She sent the picture and the last four digits of Larry's social security number to her friends, and she captioned the image, just in case you need to find us. During the day, before the group of late-night partygoers arrived at Jimmy's Grand Sutton apartment, Jimmy had gone to a friend's giving. He was home by 9.30 p.m., and at some point that evening, Jimmy had a female friend over for a hookup. Afterward, she fell asleep in the bed, but Jimmy didn't. He stayed up to watch the Madison Square Garden UFC fight between Eddie Alvarez and Conor McGregor on television. Then he began getting ready for bed, and that's when Jimmy saw Larry had sent him a text message. Larry was trying to get Jimmy to host this impromptu after-party, and Jimmy, who enjoyed having a good time, well, he agreed. Not long after, this after-party was in full swing. The guests consisted of Jimmy, Larry, Max, and these five strangers. They were listening to music, drinking, and having debates about the recent presidential election. Then, Jimmy and Larry teased each other about who could lift more weights, which somehow started a series of competitive games between the two friends. This led to a lap dance competition, where Jimmy and Larry took turns giving a woman a lap dance to the tune of Genuine's Pony. You might remember that song from the Shanning Tatum Magic Mike movie. It's very sexual in nature. Eyewitnesses claim there was no hostility between any of the partygoers at that time. It truly seemed like everyone was having a really, really good time. Although, as we all know, a good time to some is different from a good time to others. And it's important to note that this particular good time involved quite a bit of cocaine. Larry was using his pocket knife to cut up the lines and offer people bumps. It's likely Larry was one of many people offering and partaking in the drug use. And that's how the night proceeded, with people getting higher and higher before inevitably it all came crashing down. Around dawn, the after party at Jimmy's place began to die down. Jimmy's female friend, who had fallen asleep in his bed the evening before, left, and one of the two men that Larry invited over from the club did the same. Then, Larry and the other new guy he'd met at the club, Joey Comunale, walked the remaining three women down to their Uber. At 6.44 a.m., surveillance footage shows Larry and Joey going back inside the Grand Sutton and making their way to Jimmy's apartment. Let's set the scene. There are four people left in Jimmy's Grand Sutton apartment, You've got Max Gemma, who is, by everyone's account, asleep on the couch. Then there's Jimmy Rackover, who is still awake. And lastly, we have Larry DeLeon and Joey Comunale, who just returned from walking the women outside. From this point forward, no one except these four people, Max, Jimmy, Larry, and Joey, know with 100% certainty what happened in this luxury condo. And one of those men is no longer with us. Joseph A. Comunale was born on March 9th of 1990 in Stamford, Connecticut. He went by Joey, and he had one sister. 
Around 2008, Joey graduated from high school, and after that, he attended Hofstra University on Long Island, New York, where he earned his bachelor's degree in legal studies and business. While he was in college, Joey became known as a kind and friendly young man. He continued to develop his interests like traveling, cars, and hip-hop, and he joined the Delta Sigma Pi fraternity. Joey also played baseball and hockey, though he preferred hockey. That was his real passion. Like some of the others in today's story, Joey grew up in a successful family, but his father came from a modest background. He was self-made, but over time, he built a series of successful security companies. And in 2014, after years of hard work, his father, Pat, sold one of those companies for at least $100 million. That is crazy successful. That is incredible hard work. Joey and his father, Pat, were incredibly close. They spoke every single day and were described as best friends. By 2016, 26-year-old Joey had even followed in his father's career footsteps since he was working for a security company in Elmsford, New York. Every Sunday, Pat and Joey would convene at the Communale family home in Stamford, and they'd pick their fantasy football team lineups. Then they'd spend the whole day watching football together. That's actually how Pat knew something was wrong. Because on Sunday, November 13th of 2016, Joey never showed up for their weekly football ritual. Sadly, on Sunday, November 13th of 2016, 26-year-old Joey Comunale was brutally and senselessly murdered. He was violently beaten and stabbed in the chest 15 times. Nine stab wounds to the right side of his torso, six stab wounds to the left side of his torso. We know that Joey was killed within an hour of those three women leaving Jimmy's apartment at 6.44 a.m., but all other events related to Joey's murder are highly contested. According to Jimmy, when Larry and Joey returned from walking the women out, Jimmy made a trip to a different location in the Grand Sutton building. He went to the 32nd floor and entered his father figure, Jeffrey Rackover's home. Video footage from inside Jeffrey's place verifies this specific part of Jimmy's story. Law enforcement could clearly see Jimmy rifling through Jeffrey's wall safe while Jeffrey slept in his bed. Four minutes later, Jimmy was back in his own apartment. And as Jimmy tells it, in between the time he left and the time he came back, that's when Joey had been murdered. In this version of events, it suggested that Larry started a fight which ended in Joey's death. The reason for the fight was unknown, but could have been related to drugs or Joey hitting on a woman that Larry was interested in. Ultimately, Jimmy claimed that he had no negative feelings towards Joey. It was only Larry who'd had a problem with him. Years later, Jimmy told Vanity Fair, I wasn't even there. I never laid my hands on Joey. I didn't get into a fight with him or nothing. The only thing Jimmy admitted to was asking Joey to go home. But both Max and Larry claimed that Jimmy was lying, because according to them, this is what actually happened. When Larry and Joey returned to the apartment after walking the women down, Max was asleep on the living room couch with a blanket. Then, Jimmy ran up to Jeffrey's apartment to get more cocaine since they'd run out, and Joey was tasked with grabbing more cigarettes. While Jimmy was in Jeffrey's apartment searching for drugs, Larry and Joey began fighting. Joey repeatedly shouted at Larry, quote, James is getting cocaine. I'm getting cigarettes. What the fuck do you bring to the table? End quote. While slamming his hands on the living room table. Infuriated, Larry began punching the man he'd only met the night before. Then he slammed Joey to the ground. 
That's when Max woke up during Larry and Joey's altercation, and he watched Joey get knocked unconscious onto the hardwood floor. At this point, Jimmy was back in his apartment too, and according to Max and Larry, Jimmy told the now unconscious Joey, this is what you get for fucking with my boy. Then, Jimmy proceeded to beat Joey to a bloody pulp. Larry asked Jimmy to stop, and Jimmy did, for a moment, but then Jimmy continued assaulting Joey. By this time, Joey was clearly having trouble breathing, so Larry told Jimmy to stop and again, eventually Jimmy did. Now Jimmy was panicking. He was concerned he'd have to go to prison for assaulting Joey. As you know, Jimmy had already served some time and he wasn't eager to do it again. Out of desperation, Jimmy declared, I gotta get rid of him. I got to kill him. Larry offered to call the police and take the blame, but Jimmy refused his offer and began strangling Joey instead. After Joey was murdered, Jimmy made Max and Larry take off their bloody clothes, and as Larry and Max disrobed in the bedroom, Larry turned around and saw Jimmy pulling a knife out of Joey's head. There are several reasons to doubt some of Larry and Max's story. First and foremost, the autopsy determined that Joey was never stabbed in the head, and none of this narrative explained how Joey was stabbed 15 times in the chest. Secondly, Larry and Max were roommates. As you'll learn in a moment, there were several days between when Joey was killed and when these men were arrested. So if you're ever going to spend some time getting your stories straight and corroborating your timeline with someone, well, it would be super convenient if that someone was also your roommate. Your roommate, whose father worked alongside powerful people, people who knew the president-elect Donald Trump pretty well. After Joey was murdered, Jimmy, Larry, and Max's stories aligned perfectly, so we know that this is exactly what happened. The three men were going to dismember Joey's body to make it easier to hide, so they dragged Joey to the bathtub, and they made attempts, and I'm not going to get into the specifics here, it's completely unnecessary, but... Eventually, they decided this wasn't going to work, and they needed a new plan. It was at this time that Max borrowed some clean clothes from Jimmy and left the Grand Sutton behind. You might think that Max would go to the police and explain everything, but he didn't. Instead, Max boarded a train and went to Jersey City, and Max had a childhood friend of his pick him up at the station to take him home. That childhood friend was named Kyle Jarman. Tragically, Kyle died by a drug overdose not long after all of this occurred. There is some speculation that Kyle was a victim of foul play, that perhaps he could have offered crucial testimony for this case and was silenced before he was given the chance, but that theory has never been properly explored or proven. And honestly, this could all be a random coincidence. Like many details of this case, we will simply never know. For now, let's jump back to Sunday, November 13th in Jimmy's bougie apartment. Max, Larry, and Jimmy can't dismember Joey's body. They've given up. And now Max has gotten the hell out of Dodge. He doesn't want to be anywhere near any of this. At this point, Larry and Jimmy had to decide what their next steps were going to be. And their next steps, objectively, were batshit crazy. Larry and Jimmy wrapped Joey in saran wrap and a bed comforter. Then they waited for nightfall. As they waited, the two men cleaned Jimmy's apartment with bleach. They disposed of their clothes in the building's garbage, and they got rid of all the bloody towels and sheets they could find. They also trashed Joey's wallet, clothes, and his gold chain. Then, they scoped out the Grand Sutton for a security camera-free exit, 
and they ordered $76 worth of food from Bear Burger. Once it was dark outside, Jimmy borrowed Jeffrey Rockover's black 2015 Mercedes-Benz, and Jimmy parked it along the curb near the Grand Sutton. Next, Jimmy waited for the busy Manhattan sidewalk to become relatively clear of pedestrians, and then he gave Larry the signal. That's when they wrapped him in the comforter and pushed him out the window, and it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you heard that right. Larry shoved Joey out of Jimmy's fourth-floor apartment window onto the sidewalk. Then the men stuffed Joey's body into the trunk of Jimmy's Mercedes, and they drove to Oceanport, New Jersey. Larry knew of the perfect hiding place, a marshy secluded area behind a flower shop about two miles from one of his family's homes. When they got to the isolated area, Jimmy and Larry doused Joey in gasoline and attempted to start a fire, and then they buried him in a shallow grave. This whole thing sounds like a complete nightmare. And our first degree Adrian wonders if Jimmy and Larry were under the influence as they tried to work out this plan. If you think about, I mean, how disorganized the whole thing was, like you murdered him inside Jimmy's apartment and then you realize, oh no, there's blood everywhere. We have to clean up. And then you realize, oh no, I have a dead body. Let me dismember it so it's easier to get out of the apartment. And then you realize, oh no, (laughs) it's really hard to dismember a body. So... We have to then shove him out of a window. Like, it's just (laughs) no sober mind is coming up with that game plan. Like, let's cover up the broken lamp so mom doesn't see and get mad at us. And believe it or not, it gets worse. While Jimmy and Larry were plotting, Joey's family and friends were sick with worry. Since Joey had missed his weekly Sunday football date with his dad, they all knew something was wrong by that same afternoon. So his dad, Pat, began calling Joey's friends to see if they knew where his son was. And eventually, Pat got a hold of Larry's number. At the same time that Larry was sadly telling Pat that he had no idea where Joey could be, that Joey had gone off to get cigarettes and never returned, Joey was in the bathtub, right in the same apartment as him. Literal feet away from Larry as Larry spoke to Joey's worried father. It's disgusting. After Pat's conversation with Larry, Joey's dad went to his local police in Stamford, Connecticut, but they explained to him that they had no jurisdiction in New York City. So he went to Manhattan's 17th precinct early the next morning to report Joey missing. And that's when he met a homicide detective named Yeoman Castro. Pat knew that Joey was last seen in the Grand Sutton building, and he told Castro as much. So the two men made their way to the luxury apartment complex to investigate. This is how they saw the security footage that showed Larry and Joey walking into Joey's apartment at 6.44 a.m. This footage, it was a game changer. It immediately debunked Larry's story that Jimmy had left and never returned. Because if Joey had left at all, he would have been caught on camera. Right away, Detective Castro called Larry for further details. And Larry became flustered and started talking very quickly. Detective Castro knew a lead when he had one. So after his call with Larry... Castro contacted Max and Jimmy, and they verified Larry's story. The story that Castro knew was absolutely false. Basically, they implicated themselves after going to such great lengths to hide their crime. And if that's not poetic justice, well, I don't know what is. And as Joey's dad and Detective Castro were at the Grand Sutton looking around, Joey's dad went to use his cell phone outside. And that's when he saw a garbage truck preparing to take away the Grand Sutton's dumpster. 
He ran inside and urged Detective Castro to stop the garbage truck, which led to the recovery of a ton of valuable evidence, including all of the bloody items that Jimmy and Larry had thrown away. After that, more police officers arrived to sweep the Grand Sutton for clues. They even used trained police dogs to track Joey's scent. Then, Jimmy arrived home from work. At about 6 p.m. on Tuesday, November 15th, two days after Joey was killed, 25-year-old Jimmy Rackover was arrested and booked in 13th Precinct. They held him on driving without a valid license, but it was understood that this was just a placeholder charge until they found Joey. Jimmy wouldn't talk to the police without a lawyer, so while Jimmy was waiting in his holding cell, an undercover officer was planted in the cell with him. For the next 10 hours, Jimmy made numerous self-incriminating statements. He said he suffered from roid rage and that there would be no bail for murder. Later on, Jimmy denied that he said any of these things. On the same day that Jimmy was arrested, 28-year-old Larry DeLeon agreed to talk to the police. By that night, Larry had admitted to punching Joey, but he claimed that Jimmy had actually been the one to kill him. And Larry told the law enforcement officers where Joey's grave was. After Larry's confession, he and Jimmy were held on hindering prosecution, concealment of a corpse, and tampering with evidence. A few weeks later, 29-year-old Max Gemma was brought in on lesser charges. When the $300,000 bail was set for the three men, Max and Larry paid and got out. But Jimmy didn't leave his cell. You see, his father figure, Jeffrey Rackover, had found out about all that had transpired, and he cut ties with Jimmy, and Jimmy couldn't afford to pay on his own. Oddly enough, around this time, our first degree Adrian's high school class met for their 11-year reunion, and by chance, this reunion happened to occur when Larry was out on bail. Everyone was wondering, would Larry show up? I guess my class, we did it a year late, so it was our 10-year reunion, but we did it 11 years later, and he was out on bail at that time. Everybody I spoke to was just kind of like, do you think he's going to show up to our 10-year reunion? Like, I remember kind of looking at the door and just wondering, you know, if he's going to waltz into, I mean, we were at a bar, so he's going to waltz into a bar with an ankle monitor on and be like, hey, guys. <laughs> it was a topic of discussion, but while my morbid curiosity wanted him to be there, but in reality, I don't know how I would have felt if he actually did show up. Larry didn't show up to the Red Bank High School class reunion, and for six months, no one was charged with Joey's murder, which was, of course, probably unimaginably painful for Joey's family. After all, the police had the body, a confession, and bloodstained clothing. Plus, every possible perpetrator was in their custody, and I'm sure Joey's family was baffled, heartbroken. What in the world could be holding things up? Well, there are some suggestions that possibly the district attorney was moving slowly since Max's father was loosely tied to Trump. This DA, Cyrus Vance, has, according to Vanity Fair, a shaky reputation as a trustworthy prosecutor when it came to the rich and the powerful. But who knows, right? Maybe the DA's office was experiencing critical levels of backlog during this time. And it's worth noting that the DA's office denied that anything sketchy was happening with the pace of Joey's case. Finally, in February of 2017, there was some forward momentum. The FBI had subpoenaed Jimmy's former best friend, 24-year-old Louis Ruggiero Jr., 
and Lewis told the FBI that Jimmy had called him in the days following Joey's death. The two men met at an Equinox locker room. And Jimmy explained to Lewis that although Larry had initiated the fight with Joey, that Jimmy had been the one to deal the final blow. Upon hearing this information from Jimmy, Lewis did not call the police. Instead, he contacted his lawyer and his mother. So Lewis's mother was Fox 5 news anchor Rosanna Scotto. And Lewis's maternal grandfather, Rosanna's father, was Anthony Scotto. Anthony Scotto was a well-known and well-connected New York mobster. Get this. So in 1969, Anthony was listed by the U.S. Department of Justice as a captain, which is government speak for boss in the Gambino Mafia family. And 10 years later, in 1979, Anthony was convicted for 33 federal charges related to bribery and racketeering. This may seem like an aside, but it's actually really important for context. And we just want to point out that Lewis calling his mom, Rosanna Scotto, daughter of Anthony Scotto, might mean something different than, say, you or I calling our moms. She possibly has some insight that most other people don't. And Lewis testified to all of this before a grand jury in April of 2017. And that was critical for the prosecution because it led to Jimmy and Larry's indictment for second-degree murder. However, some were suspicious of Lewis's credibility. His story corroborated almost perfectly with Max and Larry's version of events, perhaps too perfectly. Plus, there were questions about the circumstances leading up to Jimmy's confession to Lewis. You see, Jimmy and Lewis were not on good terms. In early 2016, less than a year before Joey's death, the two men had a nasty falling out. They'd lost nearly $40,000 after buying into an illegal sports betting book. And while trying to recoup his loss, Jimmy had blackmailed Lewis and threatened to tell Lewis's girlfriend that he was cheating on her. So this begged the question, why would Jimmy confess murder to Lewis, his ex-best friend that he blackmailed? And that's a really good question in my opinion. On October 15th of 2018, Jimmy Rackover's trial began. By this time, Joey had been gone for nearly two years. Throughout the trial, the prosecution asserted that both Jimmy and Larry were equally culpable for Joey's murder, although Jimmy was painted as the ringleader of the operation. That tracks with what our first degree Adrian remembers of Larry, at least. He was more of a follower. I wouldn't ever say that Larry was the leader of any kind of group, so I can't imagine him having this idea or even encouraging other people to do any of these things. The fact that he showed the cops where the body was, that made sense for me. I felt like something that he would do because I couldn't imagine him doing this to begin with, and I can't imagine him holding on to that kind of guilt. The prosecution's theory was that Larry and Jimmy might have murdered Joey together. That could be why there were stab wounds on both sides of Joey's body. They may have been inflicted while Larry and Jimmy were stabbing Joey in tandem. But even if that wasn't exactly how Joey was killed, the state was still certain that the two men had completed this murder together. After all, if only one of them had done it, why on earth would they both go to such great lengths to hide Joey's body? Jimmy's defense team claimed that Larry killed Joey all by himself and that Jimmy only helped Larry hide Joey's body out of fear that he'd lose his opulent lifestyle and his relationship with Jeffrey Rackover. The defense argued that Larry was in a drug-fueled rage, and they pointed to Larry's history of violence, saying Larry never met a bar fight he could pass up. 
Plus, witnesses verified that Larry had a pocket knife out at the party, and that could have been the weapon used to stab Joey. Not to mention, investigators found way more blood on Larry's clothes, and Larry's signet ring that he'd been wearing that night was badly dented, as if Larry had punched something hard over and over again. According to the defense's timeline, Larry killed Joey during the four minutes Jimmy was out of his apartment. But according to the prosecution, that wouldn't have been nearly enough time to brutally beat Joey and stab him 15 times. Jimmy's former best friend, Lewis, testified for the prosecution, and he told the jury how Jimmy had confessed to killing Joey to him at that equinox. But that wasn't as helpful as you might think. Not only was Lewis's own criminal history brought up to undermine his credibility, his story had evolved over time to better match Max and Larry's version of events. At first, Lewis claimed that Joey's neck was broken. It wasn't. Then he claimed that Joey's neck was slit. It hadn't been. And only at Jimmy's trial did Lewis bring up that Jimmy had stabbed Joey. Neither Larry nor Jimmy testified at Jimmy's trial. And on November 2nd of 2018, after about four hours of deliberation, the jury found 27-year-old Jimmy Rockover guilty of second-degree murder. Before issuing the sentence, the judge said, There remains no truly understandable reason that Joey Comunale is dead today. In the normal course of events, people drink and do drugs and party all night long all the time without being savagely murdered. Then, the judge gave Jimmy the maximum possible sentence, which was 28 years to life in prison. Today, Jimmy is incarcerated in Elmira, New York, and he'll be eligible for parole on July 16th of 2045, when he's 54 years old. Joey's father has publicly said of Jimmy, This coward has no respect for human life and has no place in a free society. He referred to Jimmy as proof that evil inhabits the earth. Next up was Larry, but not the fucking Larry that our first-degree Adrian knew. He was an older, much worse Larry. One that had at the very least contributed to taking a human life and trying to hide it in the most disrespectful way possible. It's such a juxtaposition. It's so, it's so weird. Take that person and put what he did next to him is so, like the cognitive dissonance is just, it's overwhelming. For me personally, if I, if you were to ask me who I graduated with that could have done this, he wouldn't have even made my list. So you never know who you're with or who you're around or what circumstances are gonna lead you to do something heinous. It just, it just surprises me that, it'll always surprise me that he did it. Even if he didn't deal the final blow, he was in a large part a part of the assault, the cover-up, the cleanup, the moving across state lines. And I understand being scared and under the influence, but there was a lot of times he could have made a better choice. On January 8th of 2019, one month after Jimmy was sentenced, 31-year-old Larry DeLeon pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter in exchange for 23 years in prison. Joey's family supported this plea deal. He'll be considered for release on January 12th of 2037 when he's 48 years old. 32-year-old Max Gemma was never charged with murder. He ended up pleading guilty to hindering prosecution. By the end of it all, Max was sentenced to six months in prison, and he was released after four months in April of 2019. During the court proceedings, Max apologized to Joey's family. 
Sometimes we have less sympathy for those we believe are privileged, the rich, the famous, the well-off. And honestly, it makes sense. It's hard to comprehend how someone can take every advantage the world can give them. Money, fame, power, education, opportunities, comfortability. And still, despite all of that, make horrifying decisions. Unfathomably awful decisions like killing someone, trying to dismember someone, and beyond. And lying to the victim's family all the while. A person who wants for nothing has now made others want for the impossible, for their loved one to return. It just goes to show that being a good person is about more than a bank account. Having morals is a choice we all make. Because spreading love and kindness is free. Being a good person is free. And being a bad person can cost so many, so much. That is the end of this solo Alexis Linkletter episode. Thank you so much to Adrian for being our first degree. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. And for all of you listening, if you have a first degree story that you want to share, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter, at Jack Manick, at the first degree. Join our Facebook group. That's where the real stuff is happening. That's where intense conversations and debates are happening. It's really some good stuff. And join us on Patreon. You get a second episode per week when you join us on Patreon. It's amazing stuff happening over there. And we love you all. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, Vanity Fair, Newsday, Hartford Current, Find a Grave, New York Department of Corrections, Ashbury Park Press, The Journal News, The Daily News, The New York Times, and The Buffalo News. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.